0: Welcome to the Serious TV Drama Podcast. I'm Scott, and joining me once again... The Oola Munk to my Mr. Monk. The Wit Far to my, eh, so far, not so witty intro. It's Brian.
1: Hey, Brian. Hey, Scott. We're here for the season finale. I'm excited to talk about this.
0: Well, you know, we are here to discuss the season finale, the season five finale of Fargo, in fact. And likely we'll probably touch on the whole season as a whole to boot. But before we do, I wanted to touch on some other TV matters. I know, I know folks out there, you get downloaded, you clicked, you plugged in to hear about Fargo, not some other nonsense. Look, it'll just be another 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. Well, we know what that usually means. 40 minutes. <laughs> we'll see. Um, Like, I'm going to keep using the phrase touch on because I just like that phrase today because I'm I'm more touchy-feely tonight. I wanted to touch on some recent awards that were handed out to a few select TV series. And I also wanted to, and I emphasize briefly, and I'm going to watch the clock and try to stick to that word for a change, briefly give a quick take on three different shows, two of which just kicked off this past Sunday and the other ended a few days beforehand. And to be clear. So y'all don't need to be skipping outside of just being purely impatient. I swear there will be no actual spoilers. At least nothing that's going to make you want to track me down and give me the old Will Smith keep those spoilers out of your motherfucking mouth kind of treatment. Now, I know there may be a few jaded listeners out there who might think this is all just another excuse for me to use that really cool interstitial transitional music that I brought back for the 400th podcast. And to those snarky smartasses, I would say... Come on, how cool is that? Best editing decision ever. So, Brian, whether we watched them or we read about them, we know that it's award season now. And there's a sudden slew of them over the past week or two. And at least one, the biggest of the three, happened, you know, just earlier this week. Instead of its usual September showing due to, like, the writers and actress strikes and whatever um it's actually the first time i didn't watch it while it aired because i was i had to be out that night and so i actually dvr'd it and kind of watched a little bit of it in the wee hours and i was too tired and then watched the rest of it the following morning i i made sure i wasn't gonna get spoiled on anything but honestly <clears throat> it's really hard to get spoiled on something when you're pretty sure you know it's gonna win pretty much practically every award So, you know, if we, if we go back like to the golden globes and let's face it, I think one watches the golden globes more to see the celebs just hanging out and drinking and maybe hoping, and hopefully you'll see a a good host or hosts skewer them for the first 10 minutes. And maybe you do get an idea of maybe who the true Oscar front runners are going to be, but that's pretty much it. Um, But good Lord. I mean, everyone's talked about it already, so I don't want to say too much about it, but I feel I need to because the more I thought about it, the more annoyed I got. The guy who was hosting the Golden Globes, Joe Coy, I'm sorry, he was so excruciatingly bad to begin with. I'm not even going to comment on any of his jokes. They're just like, they were just kind of like, bleh, meh, whatever it's the way he threw the writers under the bus for all the flat jokes and then whining during his stage uh, thing there that he only got the gig 10 days ago. That to me was more embarrassing than any attempt I've seen at a punchline or anything else he tried to do that night.
1: Well, I, I, if you're, if you're going to bomb, own it, man, just, just own it. And, and, there's a thing that that I find cringe and it's one of the reasons that even before Bill Maher went like totally wacko in my mind. And uh-huh. if you like Bill Maher, more power to you, but it's something I noticed in the last few years of Bill Maher that when the audience didn't laugh at a joke, he would be like, why aren't you laughing at my joke? like, the, the ask, the act of asking the audience or chiding an audience for not laughing at your joke, I, I just is so cringe to me and begging for a laugh or saying you should have laughed or that was funny. And it was just and look like whatever the situations like, you know, I don't know. A lot of comedians have spoken up for him and said it's it, it's a tough gig. And, you know, and, and he ate shit and he knows he ate shit, but he's a professional comedian you know he ate shit that night, and uh, rightfully so. But it was just man, it it was cringe. It was cringe as hell. The way I look at it, kind of following up on
0: something you were saying, if you're going to be a a comedian, I mean, and we're talking either either the more talented ones, or the more or at least the more interesting ones. And I've listened to many comedians talk. I mean. That Seinfeld show, Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee, was a great uh, forum for that. And I've seen it in all, all in any number of other specials and interviews, whatever. Comedians often r- revel in bombing. They talk about things. They, 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 some, they sometimes want to bomb practically. Norm MacDonald made an art out of it. And you the whole thing is that you double down with it. And what you're saying, as far as you know, issues with the audience—that was a Larry David thing back in the day when he was first starting out. Like he open, <laughs> he was so openly antagonistic of the audience. I think that he, there's one bit. I think I'm in an interview he said once where he came out. I think he started and just looked at everyone and was like, Ugh, "This audience," and he just left. <laughs> so, <laughs> but what this guy did, the two things, my, two issues were, you know, first of all. The whole thing about knocking the writers. I'm sorry. The only type of hosts that can get away with mocking your writers are late night talk show hosts who have these writers that they worked with for years and everyone's in on the joke if they get mocked and vice versa. A dude that's just got this gig, as he says, 10 days ago, does not have that kind of carte blanche. And speaking of the 10 days ago thing, which is what might have even annoyed me more, you know oh boo hoo i only got the job 10 days ago you know i'm sorry if you're either an actual comedian or at least you're someone skilled in comedy and improv and sketch whatever you should be able to handle this uh, maybe i shouldn't say with no freaking problem because i know it's a hard room but you know Arrange ahead of time to do some crowd work with a few of them. Watch a few previous Golden Globe shows to get the idea of how to work the room and how to get away with ripping anybody. I don't, you know, you can YouTube this, you schmuck. But um, eh. anyway, didn't want to spend uh, too much time talking about him. Already did. I digressed. Basically, no matter what award we're talking about. Be it as meaningless a one like the Golden Globe, which it is in my mind, you know, it's like one tick above a People's Choice Award, quite frankly, or the Critics' Choice, for that matter. Or we got the real biggie this week, the Emmy, with very, very, very few exceptions. Three series walked away with almost all the hardware. Succession got the nod in almost all the drama TV categories. The Bear got almost... All the awards and all the "quote unquote" comedy TV categories, with a couple, again, couple, an exception or two here or there, but not many. And Beef got pretty much every award in all the limited series categories. And, and you know, it's hard for me to complain that much about it because those three were literally my numbers one, two, and five TV series of 2023. But it still feels really unfair. And we've talked about this before for the bear, which has moments of amusement, but really feels, you know, it's not fair for all these powerful dramatic performances to go up against comedic performances, you know, stuff that was just more designed just to get a laugh. Except for something maybe like Barry up, I guess. But, but I understand it. We've got, we've all, we've all learned to get past this. So it's hard to argue about. Any of the, the wins, especially the succession wins, but <laughs> and there's a big butt. You know, even even Sir even Sir Mix-a-Lot wouldn't like a butt this big. <laughs> I got a bone to pick, and I'm I'm pretty I'm 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 going to be pretty I'm going to be more sure than anything I've been in this world that you will be in lockstep with me on this after. The Emmy night was over. We found out that Better Call Saul had broken a record. Better Call Saul became the most nominated show to never win an Emmy over the course of its entire history. Six seasons, 63 episodes, 53 nominations, zero wins. Uh, Seriously? (laughs) Uh, I mean, after all this time, look, not even one win for writing or directing? Ever? Uh, I mean, look, I I get it, especially... Look, it was up against the final season of Succession. I get that. And it's going to be hard to win in a lot of those categories. But... Jesus, when when you, I mean, I don't think there's a show that we've shown more love for on this podcast and Better Call Solve because of just of how long we've covered it for. We we were covering this from 2015 to you know last year, but a, a, a killer cast: Odin Kirk, Seahorn Jonathan Banks, John Carlos Esposito, Tony, Dalt, Michael McKean None of them ever won an Emmy. <laughs>
1: It's, uh, it's, it's mind blowing and, you know, you can chalk it off to bad timing or say it, you know, it came along at the wrong time, but, um, it, it, I I think that this will be a badge of distinction where maybe years later, better call Saul will be like this generation's version of the wire where people pick it up you know, 8, 10 years from now and go, oh my God, this show is amazing. Why wasn't it more recognized when it came out? Uh, but, you know, I, I, I mean, some criminally uh, underrated work on that. And I think all of us, I mean, you know, our Susan Lucci is Ray Seahorn. Like, the fact that she never got the love she deserved for what she did for Kim Wexler. Uh It is, is just, it's just a damn shame. And I know she went a lot against great actresses and uh, great roles, but, you know, somebody somewhere, Peter Gould, somebody somewhere, I, I think should have gotten one piece of hardware. But, you know, hopefully the, hopefully that will be like almost like the cool kid selling point. Like, you know, it'll be the indie band show that if you, Want to fall in love with you can because, in many ways, you know, Breaking Bad can't be seen in a vacuum without it. And the people that find Breaking Bad will inevitably gravitate towards it and hopefully it'll have a second lie.
0: Oh, I mean, it already has. I mean, people, people watch or we it on Netflix all the time, and there's there's actually a number of people have watched that and have never seen Breaking Bad, which find I find strange. But going back to the actual awards and what happened, I mean, I was happy for Kieran Culkin. Don't get me wrong, and it was his first win, so it's really awesome. But Jesus Christ, Odenkirk had a goddamn heart attack once on the set. He's got nothing, and I know what you were saying about Raya Sehorn because we love Rhea seahorn and, and I'm going to get to her in a second but she only just started to finally get nominations. Odenkirk's got nominations season after season after season and hasn't won. So the Susan Luchy thing might actually be more applicable to him than it would be for Rhea. But but, what they did to her is, is what made me angry. didn't just annoy me. It made me angry because the fact that I will call her the infernally eternally annoying jennifer coolidge i'm sorry is she ever really doing that much more than playing herself she wins supporting actress for that stupid white lotus junk i'm and i'm sure most of our listeners like the show i'm sorry i don't I, I i hate the first season i have no interest in watching it i don't care that walton goggins is gonna be on the third season I don't care. I don't care if, if you told me John Hammond and Brian Cranston. No, that's a lie. I'd watch it then. <laughs> anyway, but the fact that she won it over Rhea Seahorn, who and I'm right, sorry, who who should have won just for the crying scene
1: on the bus in Better Call Saul alone, I thought was shameful. Shameful. That to that alone. to me was. I mean, look, like at the top, you said something I agree with that. In a lot of years, there, there can be minor controversy or a, a lot of argument over who wins this or that. I, I think this was a year the consensus was fairly right, a lot more than than usual in on these award shows. Um, and having seen that the, each one of them kind of all come to the same conclusion, uh, it'll be interesting to see if... Uh, it, it'll be interesting to see what people write to think, look back on TV and think about what was missed. Mm -hmm. But I think the consensus was, was pretty spot on, but that choice, that choice to me felt like a fan favorite and not deserving of the work. Right. And, and there's, and there's also going
0: to be a level of confusion just in general with the Emmys, with some of the things that were nominated because I'm, I, I guarantee you that the majority of people watching, when you see the bear win, they're assuming the bear is winning for the season that we all just saw this summer. That is not the season that it was winning for. It was winning for season one. Season two came out after the qualify the, the, the last, uh, I think the closing date for the Emmys is, uh, the end of May. And that didn't premiere till over the summer. The same with, uh, say like only murderers in the building everyone probably assumed this is season three there. Nope. Watch the scenes they're showing. They're all from season two. So Martin short might've deserved it more for what he did in season three, not as much for season two, depending on, you know, know, your mile, your mileage may vary, but, get but, you know, to finish up, just getting back to just overall better call. So I'll just finish up. There is one thing. I'm going to be talking about being a smart ass. I'm going to be the biggest smart ass of all here. It is one way, in my mind, to silence, silence the Better Call Saul versus Breaking Bad debate. And I do love Better Call Saul, but I tire of that whole, it's better, no, stop, stop yourself. It's a different show. It's a very good show. It's an excellent show. It's right there, but it ain't better. So let me see what, what what did we say before better call Saul 53 nominations no wins but what what did Breaking Bad do Oh look at that 58 nominations 16 wins Even Saul Goodman would have to rest that case we covered some of the TV we were looking forward to in 2024, two shows led off the list with True Detective, Night Country, which like most folks, I, had, we had all known about for, I don't know, over a year. And then there was Monsieur Spade, which at least I personally had only known about for a couple days. Now it turns out beyond both being well, clearly detective and thus mystery based, they both, you know, Air at nine PM Eastern Standard Time on Sunday nights. They're both six part series. I looked it up. They're not getting preempted for the Super Bowl or anything else, so they're both going to end at the on the same date. On I think it's February. I didn't write that. Down. I think it's February eighteenth. If I'm not mistaken. And so I did watch them both. And again, as I said earlier, nothing I plan to say here should in any way really constitute a spoiler. I'm not going to make any mention of how either episode ends, other than like a mystery series should. They both have a whoa kind of horrible reveal, as one would expect. First, True Detective, Night Country. Um, so, Brian, the way I'm looking at it, for the most part, I find it, at the very least, reasonably engaging. Uh, a lot of it is Jodie Foster's Liz Danvers. This ain't no Clarice Starling. No. Might, might be, and I, and I, I just realized there's a, there's a potential pun here. I, I apologize. Might be the polar opposite. <laughs> Whereas, you know, Agent Starling was someone, you know, she was a, f- she was fresh, a rookie, someone craving validation and acceptance and needed to prove herself in a world dominated by men. The Detective Danvers character. She's well past that shit. She doesn't care about being likable or being mindful of other people's feelings or what have you. She might be just a little bit initially more obtuse than Clarice Starling was, or maybe because she's like 30 years older than Clarice, she's someone who's become more set in her ways. She's someone who might represent the establishment rather than Clarice, who was always trying to find a foothold, a crack in the system to make her place there. But I've... Brian, I have been a Jody Foster fan since 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 John Hinckley declared her, his love for her back in the day. <laughs> so, you know, I remember her I go I mean, people think, oh, you what you go back to Sans Lambs or Aques like, no, no, no. I go back to the little girl who lives down the lane, <laughs> you know, you know, and taxi driver and stuff like that. So the, the show grabs me right from the get go with her. So I
1: mean, what, what did you what did you think about her? Um, I, I loved seeing her in this role and the thing I, I really enjoy that I think the viewer will enjoy is they make no attempt to hide that she is an older woman, that she has a lot of lived in life experience, uh, the, that, you know, we're going to explore trauma throughout this show uh, all the characters have threads of a past that, that, you know, we get a taste of, but, but not fully understand. Uh, and I have to say the, the thing I, you know, I'm kind of excited about because I was a big fan of, of him from Deadwood and, uh, and, you know, what, what was the movie with Jennifer Lawrence, uh, Oh, I, i'm forgetting oh, the oh, uh, Bo. setting, winter's bone yes winter's oh. bone john hawks you yep. know is it, there and to see her and him on a screen as detectives and there's some weirdness going on there um uh, oh yeah
0: it's totally entertaining uh, I, and, I, and i and i do like the, the fact that she's more in the position of authority where he's concerned but speaking of characters on it the other the other thing i felt made the made the premiere interesting to me beyond a few other other things which i will touch on hope that that is a phrase for the evening because we have the trooper evangeline navarro and she's played by the actress uh Kali rice um we can tell we know there's a history between her character and danvers that exposition has trickled out throughout the episode to, the, to a degree that I think we get a fairly clear picture of what the before was. Me personally, I liked her almost instantly. I, I liked her because she was different. She's strong. She takes charge. She's not shy about it. It's easy to see why she and Danvers would butt heads, why they would rub each other the wrong way. Um, And also this actress, Kali Rice, despite being in her mid to late 30s, She's a fairly new actress, as far as any kind of screen work. She's only got a couple credits to her name before this series, and and one of those two was a film that she actually wrote herself. So she's about as fresh a face as you can get, despite the fact she's already in. She's, like, I think, she's like thirty seven years old or something like that. And j- just overall for for the series and, and this episode, I'd say this: the present day mystery is certainly compelling. The cold case that may or may not be connected to it. I'm not going to tell you. Um, somewhat less so, but I'm willing to go along with it. And speaking of cold, the setting in this small town in Alaska, I love that. And I gotta say, the, the early scene that takes place at a remote research science station, if there's anyone who didn't think instantly of the 1982 masterpiece The Thing, that only means that you must not have seen that movie. <laughs> Because they were clearly going for that look and feel, I thought.
1: Yeah. And and if if you're on the fence about whether to return to True Detective, I'll just say two words to you. Uh, Something I think season two and three lacked that season one had was high strangeness. And Uh. in season four, without spoiling anything, there is some high strangeness going on in the darkness of the Great North. Yeah.
0: I think it's safe to say without it being in my mind, being a spoiler. Um, they're clearly leaning in more, perhaps more into the supernatural element with this storyline, the kind of thing that they kind of played with in season one. I don't recall. I honestly don't recall if it was really touched on in the subsequent seasons. I don't think it was, but maybe I don't remember those seasons very well, even though I really liked the third season. The second season was kind of, Um. And but I'm I'm curious how they'll do it because the way it was done in the past, it really turned out to be more red herrings than anything else. But I I, I, I kind of went along with it, even though that's why I think season one's a little bit overrated. But shh, you didn't hear me say that. Um. But speaking of ratings, um, the review bombing of the series on sites like Rotten Tomatoes and others which feels a lot like it's about the fact that, you know, the two leads are both women. (gasps) One of them is a woman of color, too. Oh, no. So the incel brigade that plagues fan bases from superhero to sci-fi to medieval fantasy has now infected the viewership of this series as well, which is equal parts stupid and awful. But, you know... What are you going to do? That, that's the, that's the world we live in today. And, 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 speaking of critiques, one last thing and then I'll move on. And unless you have anything else you wanted to add, uh, just a little PS and, and there are pe- and this isn't something just idiots have said. I've actually seen some fairly decent minded people, reputable people say this and I don't care. I've already taken them to the task on, on the X Twitter for it. The fact that anyone would be up in arms about the CGI that was used in the opening scene with the caribou. I find that to be such a lazy criticism <sighs> and I'll just leave it at that. So I, I don't even want to talk about it other than to say, really, really, that, that, that's what bothered you.
1: God. All right. Yeah. That, that's silly, silly, silly. And, uh, but I think what you and I agree on. Uh, before we get to the meat of our show, is to say that if you're on the fence about whether to dive back in and check episode one out, we, I think we both recommend returning to True Detective and watching episode one, that it's off to an interesting start. Absolutely. So I, I know Brian didn't
0: get a chance to watch it yet, so I'll try to be quicker on this one. I also watched Monsieur Spade. I'll, I'll say it's a little slower than True Detective. But maybe it's got somewhat faster, or sharper, or certainly more stylized dialogue mainly coming out of the mouth of the main character, who is only the most famous private investigator in the history of fiction. You know, you can go from Philip Marlowe to Jim Rockford. Sam Spade is the biggest of them all. Um, Clive Owen does well, delivering the lines that one could imagine coming out of Humphrey Bogart's mouth 60 years, or excuse me, 80 years earlier. And for those who recall and know the Maltese Falcon well, which is probably going to be like, two listeners, um, and by the way, if, if much like the thing, if you've not seen the Maltese Falcon, I don't care how old you are, you should see the Maltese Falcon. You will catch references, both big and small, to it if you're paying attention. But like I said, this one is taking its time. One might worry. We spent a lot of time in the very first episode with very little major mystery until we get to the end. So it ends up feeling more like a true launching point for what the hell is going on here. So I will just say I like it so far. There's a slight fish-out-of-water aspect with Spade in France that does tend to go away pretty quickly. I do think this is a series that maybe patience might be required, but I'm still hopeful because we've got talent. Like I said on the 400th podcast, you got talent like Scott Frank and Tom Fontana you know, pulling the strings here. So I'm hoping this turns out to be more of a good time than a waste of time. Now, I don't mean to connect the word phrase waste of time with the last show I wanted to mention here, because I'm not going to be that negative. But finally, and when I think finally, I think finale, and I think the fourth season finale of For All Mankind, which also aired last week. And Brian, like I said, ah. Not only, do, I don't just not want to spoil anything. I personally, I'm not going to mention anything that happened. Anything. And I, like I said, I don't want to be needlessly negative about the series. But can we agree that this series, which still, still has moments of excellence, many things worthy of praise, has also suffered? season after season, after its second season peak, it suffered what I call its, its, its diminishing returns. And I, I think we keep losing characters that we found, you know, so intriguing and fun and fascinating. And I think the cupboard of compelling characters, as that gets stripped, they're getting replaced by just Lander varieties. Characters that, frankly, if we're being really honest we're really just not that into
1: and not to mad. Right. I totally agree. And, uh, some of the replacements have not been developed. Uh, I mean, you know, it, uh, the, the, the plan to build up the farm system of the next generation of, uh, for all mankind Uh, Let's just say whoever's in charge of the for all mankind farm system hasn't got the top prospects playing their best ball and Uh, and, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk. No, I was going to say and um, some some of the focus remaining on the characters that we've been with has taken them in directions that, you know, quite frankly, uh, are rehashes of the past and and not that compelling. Uh, it, it, in, some ways, in some ways they are, but in some ways they aren't. And, um, uh, y- you know, I, I, I would not give this season a thumbs down, but before it finished, I was curious, you know, if I compared it against my, my list, would it have made my list? I don't know if this season makes my top 20 list now in its total using your farm system analogy, I
0: enjoyed the sports aspect of it. Um, a couple of listeners might not, don't care. Um, so you've got that happening. And then you also have like on the same team, you've got those veterans who, as they get, <laughs> as they get later in their career, they, they start becoming shells of their former selves and whatever. And you, so, Like, on this show, at least one, if not more, characters has kind of shifted from heroic to stubborn to, at times, barely fucking tolerable, I, I gotta say. Look, the finale, let's face it, For All Mankind, I think, has previously set a pretty high bar for finales when you look back at the previous seasons. Um, I mean, the season two finale was fantastic, but you know what? Season one, season three finales were also really good. Just two is the one that stands out the most, but at least the other two were still solid. This one, I'm going to go with a pretty, pretty, pretty meh. i not saying it was awful. It was more like, uh, that was it. And in a couple ways, without, again, because I'm trying to play footsie without doing any uh, spoilers here, so the people who have watched it. Hopefully, they'll know what I'm referring to when I say this. I'm going to say it in a, at least one, if not more ways. Eh, a little gutless. I thought they were a little gutless with, them, with what they did.
1: Yep, and uh, and not true to the past vision of this show. Right. Um, you know the the past vision of this show has always been to to succeed. Mankind takes big risks and does big things and. There were some storylines that I don't think were big things and didn't pay off, uh, and even some of the swings they took um, were kind of—I I don't know. Like, I—I I feel really bad being critical, too critical. Well, but, 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 but I think uh, this was the least satisfying season of this show yeah, that, to me. That's fair look. The, the good thing is,
0: I, I think. What I appreciate, but ba- about oh, what I appreciate about myself, ho, ho ho but anyone else who you know, if they're going to be honest with themselves and and also w- with a in a listening audience, is even if there's something that we tend to rave about, if there's something that, but if it's if it's something, sometimes could be something is worthy of praise, sometimes it's you know it's damned and needs to be criticized and. Doesn't matter what the show is. I mean, we we've been fortunate enough to, t- to spend a lot of times talking about some shows that really, um, rarely or, or never missed their mark, like A Better Call Saul or like A Breaking Bad. But that doesn't mean there aren't some shows. You know, we love Legion, but we had a lot of issues with what they did in their second. Right. We love Fargo, but I have a million issues with seasons three and four, and we're going to talk about you know season five shortly. But with For La Mankind, I just think they really went for it in previous seasons. And this one, I thought they held back. I thought there were other plotting and character contrivances that left me a little, I don't know, shoulder shruggy. I mean, if we can pretend that's even any sort of adjective.
1: No, I, I agree. And, and you know, I was thinking the my last comment to sort of sum up this season to me in a nutshell is many times I thought my favorite character was Daniel Stern as the administrator of NASA. Like I thought he did a really good job playing the part, um, and communicating the political difficulties, uh, around all of the things happening this season. Um, and, quite frankly his character and what it did it shouldn't have been one of the most compelling things of the season uh, but he, he, he really did a good job I, I thought in that role and there were other veterans I think that lost some off their fastball and uh, the rookies didn't hit for average or power so um. well
0: I will I will putting the lips on the point that you had there because uh i don't even know if i really care that much for the daniel stern character myself I, I, i was more fascinated just by seeing daniel stern working again um at least on camera and not as a voice but then again he's probably done a million other things since you know wonder years or whatever right but um yeah that's all i want to say about it so time to move on Rocket J Squirrel used to sort of say, and now for something you'll really like. It's the real reason you're all listening to us at all. So we're going to dive into the season five finale of Fargo titled Bisquick. Like the previous episode, it was directed by Thomas Bazooka and written by the man himself, Noah Hawley. And I love that when we open the episode, we are still in the land of fog fog and mystery and other than the fact we're watching poor gator stumble around you know what kind of struck me and obviously it's a pure art direction choice beyond the fog itself that tree because all we see other than you know sad gator for for at least for a, a little bit there is the fog and this tree and i kept thinking it's weird that there would be a tree that looks like that on this property do you know what I'm saying? Because it, it yeah. looked, there's something very. It was almost a Tim Burton esque tree, which, as I say that, and I just thought of that, I realized, oh, this is the season where they kept going to Nightmare Before Christmas. Of course, there should be a
1: Tim Burtonish kind of tree there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very, very much an out of place kind of scary looking tree. So, you know. That's, you know, it's an interesting little opening
0: there, but we, we, you know, we'll get past Gator and how sad it is. And it's like troops are mobilizing. The standoff is happening. We're, we're, we're cross cutting between multiple things here. But the person that we're really paying attention to and watching here is Roy. When Roy rides off and then he goes to see his father in law. To me, from this point on in the episode, or at least this chunk of the episode, uh, for lack of a more articulate way to put it, and I, f- and forgive me for not being like, you know, the better spoken critiques out there, whatever. I just wrote, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that throughout this fin- final episode, there is something that I've said a few times during the course of the season, and I think you've said it as well. But I, I, I know I said it. But the thing that we always can always appreciate about someone like Noah, Noah Hawley and his writing is, even when we think we're sure or we have a good idea where something's going to go, doesn't mean that's where it's going to go, and he can suddenly ve- veer this direction or that direction again one one't go no further than us than the spaceship in season two <laughs> right. um but this episode and we've been talking about John Hams Roy Tillman and the almost the the ex the progression of evil and how the the more we get to know him and have seen him both his past and present. The more we realize, okay, this has become one of the most formidable villains that we've seen—not just in the Fargo universe, just television in general. At least, at least at this stage. I didn't have—he suddenly slashes his father-in-law's throat on my Fargo bingo card, you know. So that kind of, and then when, and then when Karen shows up, and you know what he's looking to do, and I was like, oh my, and. Just the way this all plays out was—I mean, I was—I was, I was kind of sitting on the edge of the couch there. I was—I was, I was really—I was not taking a note at that point. I was just locked in, going, "Oh my gosh, this is—if—if if John Hamm doesn't win an Emmy, there he was. Oh wait a minute, yeah, he probably won't. But uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> although but, beef but, is but, out of the he, way he, now. He, so he he's—he's—he
1: is—he um, makes his full ascension to a horror movie villain in this even to the point he can't be killed um and there's an interesting parallel between him and mook in that you know there's there's a brief scene of him in the church and then he spits like you know forsaking god and we know he's committed a whole lot of sin we know things he's done and things he's willing to do um and there's almost a uh, th- there's almost a physical invulnerability to him, uh, which we l- later learn, you know, it has afflicted another character, which you know answers a question we've had in this show. Um, and he is he's Jason, he's Freddie, He's shot with a hunting rifle, and he doesn't die. He continues to kill. He continues to escape, and he gets away. And he gets inside a prison and sets things up the way he wants it. He is, you know, a horror movie villain by by the end of this. I mean, dispatching people with a knife at close range. And so I I thought the choices made in this were true to the arc of the story. And it was surprising in the way it played out, but not surprising in, in what he became and the path he took.
0: Well, they make a very interesting artistic decision, and it happens shortly after um, Dot has shot him in the gut, as you said, because um, it, it's from that point on, because that's when I believe Wit and the tactical force team also arrive, and she has to scream that, you know, I'm, I'm the hostage, and they we keep getting these little snatch, snatches of, of imagery, and they keep fading to black. Not even fading, but just cutting to black, cutting to black, cutting to black. And it's, and it's representative of of the chaos that is ensuing here, because now all, because everything beforehand had been troops mobilizing on either side of of the, of the perimeter of of the compound, but now that it's been uncovered, these people are in the compound, you know, gun gunfire is ablazing, and so on. And, of course, we get back to that tunnel, Uh, the tunnel that we've now seen incorporated a few times before this because um, his son, um, Gator, had found it before. Um, Somehow he was able to make his way through that tunnel and up through a manhole despite being blind. By the way, that earlier shot when Gator is making his way through the tunnel and the camera rotates in kind of an almost vertigo-esque kind of a. uh, nod there uh, I love that and then that's when they put the, the Fargo credit o- over it that was a beautiful shot I love when we get like, really aesthetically beautiful shots like that but the tunnel scene and with Wit in pursuit and in a way it was almost surprising because initially he's he's leaning over um, Dot to protect her as he had promised earlier so I was almost surprised that he he left her to go do this, but, but he did. And it's, it, it's almost like a, it's almost like a, a defiance of the joke where who brings a knife to a gunfight? Unfortunately, in this situation, the knife wins. And it's, it's once again, wit is having a standoff with a member of this family. It's usually with Gator. But he's had his conversation with, with, with Roy as well at the hospital, at, at the front gate as well here. Problem is, I think Wit is one of the few pure characters on the show. Um, although, in retrospect, we really never get a lot about him as much as we do the others. And actually, I'm going to say that for just a wit slash little bit I wanna talk about later on. But here, in this in this moment, I'm watching it, how it plays out, and I'm realizing that there's such a massive difference between these two men, and the problem is, and it's, and it's funny, because you had to, that opening scene in the church, you, you had referenced whatever, um, and how little that really ends up coming into play here. Because I think it's Witt's own moral code that ends up costing him his life that he can't just fire, pull the trigger. When he, where there was part of him is like, you know, I'm sure there was like any number of people who were, if they weren't singing at a
1: TV screen, at least singing, like, just shoot him in the leg. <laughs> shoot, it, shoot him and he can't do something. It, if you want to go super meta, and I kind of believe this scene is, um, you have two lawmen squaring off. And who's winning the battle of the lawmen? It's the evil one that's quick to use violence, to use his position for power, to not help people, but try to enrich himself. Uh, and the person who shows restraint, the, the kind of guy you want behind a gun, if there's somebody there that would not just shoot somebody or wouldn't beat somebody right. or, or wouldn't do all the things we've seen. And add to that layer, you know, he's a black man. Um, and he's killed by Roy. It's a super, I think it's a super meta commentary on the state of policing and where that war currently stands.
0: I I, I would essentially agree with that. I'll go along with that. Um, the, that thought had occurred to me um, to a certain degree as well. So from that point on, obviously, you know, Roy looks like he's going to escape and then he doesn't. I love the fact that it turns out it was his own son that kind of told them about that the little escape hatch when they when they came across him. So Gator did right in the end. Um I was I will admit I was kind of moved by his moment he has that moment with dot after where he's just sorry and he brings up his mom. And I love the acknowledgement by Dot that it was, you know, it, she hadn't seen her. It was a dream. It was basically a dream, so to speak. Um, but the, the moment between them, the, the the mention of the cookies, whatever. Which you know, you know, if if Dot's involved, everything does come back to some form of cooking or baking or <laughs> whatever. Um, I think for me, it was the first of at. Minimum three emotional scenes in in the, in this episode. I might be forgetting one. Maybe they'll, they'll come to. But I know there's at least three that kind of got me a little. Again, I'm I'm an easy touch, but I got I got a choked up watching that moment.
1: I I did too, and I think the the moment is where she sort of enfolds him in her arms, and it's reminiscent of the marionette. Scene where she comforted him when his yeah, dad exactly exactly. You know, like, I, I thought I thought I was supposed to echo
0: that, and and, and not not, that I'm not I'm not meaning to move away from the moment, but I, I it I should say this scene and the sadness is compounded seconds later when Dot is talking to the Fed, and it's when Dot says she asks about she asks about my Trooper with far. And she doesn't ask about the the fact that you said my trooper, not trooper Whitfar. Yeah. That made me kind of go, oh, it reminded me of like Lorraine calling her daughter in a a previous episode for some reason. And I just got uh, just so sad. And then we have, it's interesting. Remember how we had that? I mean, it was much, 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 much longer, but we marveled at that, that moment from a previous episode where we stayed on Roy as he walked across the compound to the shack and that in the shot that just goes on for a long time and you know, it's just him is fairly silent. We stay when she's in the back of the car, we stay on her for a very long time. I mean it's almost it's it's almost like it's almost like the end of the graduate <laughs> but, but on clothes. and and you're trying to figure out her emotions as you're watching it and you realize okay She's silent, but th- th- it feels like there's a certain joyous quality, or maybe something is more than relief, or maybe it's the fact that she can finally put this behind her. It's it it's a really nice moment for Juno Temple acting wise because it's all there without having to say a word, and and we stay with it a ve- for a very long shot, and um, I went, wow, that's some good work there.
1: Yeah, I, I thought it was great. She's working through the melancholy, but but increasingly looking forward to being home. And uh, you you see, it, it's kind of funny that you use the word, but it's like her whole journey is played out in the back of that car. And then she gets home. She finally makes it home. And when she gets home,
0: oh, here we go. Because it was after the commercial breaks. So like I got to... Pr- I was able to dry my eyes and calm down, whatever. Then she gets home, you know. And then Wayne, who's you know back on the mend, is all seems to be all on the mend. And Skye is there, whatever. But that's not what we care about here as much. It's the scene. It's the moment with Lorraine. Lorraine, who's certainly Lorraine, is still Lorraine it's Lorraine's feelings towards her and how, and what she's done as a result is what's changed. Again, it has to be that phrase that kind of hits me. The moment Lorraine says, that's my girl. I went, I'm I'm almost, I'm almost just a little over a right now thinking about it. But, but then it's dots reaction and actually embracing her. And you see Lorraine's face and you kind of wonder, wait, has when was the last time someone actually hugged Lorraine? Um, Jason, who piped in, uh, and we I relayed his comments from a pre, in our previous podcast. I think he actually sent me a message, which I made sure not to look at because I hadn't watched the goddamn episode yet when he, when he sent it to me. And I was like, okay, he might accidentally spoil me. But he's, he says something here um, when he was watching the final episode. And when Dot comes home, it looks like Lorraine is experiencing emotions for the first time in a long time and doesn't know how to act. Absolutely. That's exactly what's happening there. Um, and I think that's what makes that such a nice scene. Because it's like, it's moving. And yet it's kind of amusing as well, just to look on her face. Fi- uh, I, I just, it's one, it, it's not my favorite scene in the episode. It was funny, and by the way, as I'm watching the episode, I keep reminding me, like, oh, this, this is my favorite scene. And then there'll be something else that happens, like, oh, no, no, this is my, and then I realized, no, no, th- my favorite scene is even later than that. But this moment between them,
1: I, I really loved it. Yeah, it was really great, and uh, um, seeing... Lorraine, Lorraine's walls break down just for a second. Like she's somebody who always has her guard up. And, but the, the impressive thing is you watch that scene and it's like, she awkwardly can't figure out how to hug dot, (laughs) but dot is like squeezing the crap out of her. And it, and it's sort of the classic Cohen brothers, awkward Mm -hmm. humor. Uh, but but yeah, delightful, delightful reunion.
0: Now, I will say I will I will uh, gladly declare that as I'm watching the first part of this episode and by the way um if you think about a lot of the final episodes of different Fargo seasons they often feel a little top heavy initially like a lot of the major action happens in the in the early part of the episode to the degree you're like, wait, what else is there left to, to cover? And it's always like, oh, yeah, we still got to deal with this. Or we still we still haven't caught this person or whatever. So I will, the only thing I will pat myself on the back about for this entire episode, because I, I keep thinking about all the things I was wrong about all season. It's like, Andura is going to get Lorraine back? No, she ended up working for her. Way to go, Scott. I knew there was going to be a time jump. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. My only If I only had an, if I had any issue with the time jump, because of when this was taking place, because where we were before, we were in late towards the, oh, we were like past Christmas already, right? Because we already passed Halloween. Wait, wait, wait. Had we gotten to Christmas? Was it Halloween? No, it started at Halloween. Mm Mm-hmm. And how much time passed between then and where we are now? Has it been?
1: It's we- it's hard to say, but it's it, 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 a year from then was probably election time or just after election time. Mm-hmm. And okay, all right, then it's acceptable, I guess, because
0: I kept thinking uh, a year later, then we're right in the midst of all the COVID stuff, and I didn't see any indications or anything about that here. I don't care. I don't, I don't really need to be reminded about it anyway. So getting back, let me get back on track and back to, um, the episode. And I love them going to the grave because again, it almost shows one of the issues maybe is that we didn't, I feel like we found out more about, um, uh, Witt's character here than we did during the course of the show. Um, I love the line when they realized that he had six sisters and they say, no wonder he was so nice. Yeah, yeah, and a cat, <laughs> and a cat named Lucky. Mm-hmm. Mm, I gotta keep that one in mind. Jinx, Lucky. Uh, anyway, um, but you know, we get to find out little things that now Dot is actually partnering with Wayne in the business, and, and it all sounds great. It's very nice, and and Dira is apparently kind of just still working with Lorraine, and she's gonna has to go do something with her, which we're gonna talk about in a, m- a minute. But I'm gonna put I'm gonna put the episode on pause and. Maybe give okay. It's not. Let me rephrase. It's not going to be a critique. It's actually going to be some. No, it's not going to be a critique at all. It's a realization that I didn't have early on. I think we talked about it a little bit, and now that we're at we're getting near the close of of the of the season, it's so distinctly different than what we had seen in the season, definitely one and two, and maybe to a lesser extent three, where the the main thrust of the show, a lot of it is following, um, the cops and there are heroes. They're the ones trying to solve the crime, catch the killer, etc. Either it be, you no, know, either it be Miss Salverson or Mr. Salverson or, <laughs> or, or whoever they happen to be partnered up with, or even Carrie Coon's character. Um, what's her name? I just saw it. the other, Uh, it doesn't matter. Um, there's a realization we have early on in the season. It's like, yeah, they're, and Dira and Wit, 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 much more so, in the grand scheme of it all, are fairly minor characters. That the thrust of the show always remained squarely on Dot versus Roy and that situation. And while they played a part, they didn't play a major. I don't feel they played a major part. You know what I'm saying?
1: Um, yeah, I, I think I think the the law. And I may have said this earlier. I think I think the focus on this season was on a lawman who was a bad guy. Right, right, right. The lawman who was the
0: center of this season was the was the antagonist, not the protagonist. Yeah, you're right. I should have should have brought that up and given you your flowers. I'll do it now. Just it. But we go to the Federal Pendant in Thompson, Illinois. And this and now at this point in the episode, this was my favorite scene. <laughs> can we talk about how much ever, the, the moments between Lorraine and Roy just kicked ass like no other scenes did this season? Look, we can go on about... You know how I mean Juno Temple was excellent, you know, and we're gonna talk a lot about the is the, it Stu Spruill, is that his name we're gonna be we yeah. to be talking about him momentarily, whatever um and how and but I'm sorry at the end of the day, you know I have to get in there somewhere. It's the Lorraine versus Roy face offs. Were for me the highlight of the the fun highlights of the season. Going back to when they first met, to the, I, I I loved them bookending each other that way. I loved everything about the scene, the humor of it, you know, which because Lorraine being such a beautiful conniving smartass from the little I love that color on you, yeah, Terry, and. I love that Roy still thinks he can speak a certain way and hold court and show how he, how despite his circumstance, he's, he's, He's still sharing fraud, Tillman. He's still, you know, when he goes the whole thing about prison is the way the world should be, the natural order, no apology, men separated by race. Ah, I love it. I love that we worked that in there just, in, just in case. It's like, hey, you think it? Yes, he is. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And and he just goes on and on. But the moment when she sends Indira away, and then we find out exactly what it is that Lorraine has done, and by the way, that she she uses a phrase like um, when she's talking about punishment and he make, and he thinks she's making a reference to like, you know, from like the Bible. And she's like, Oh no, no, it's an older text written on stone tablets, written in the age of the skull fuckers. And I went, Oh, why yeah. did she say skull fuckers? I'm like, okay, let's hear. And the, the fact that she's, she's essentially bought off like the entire prison to mess with him um, and it keeps coming back to the whole idea of debt, which I guess is a thing throughout the entire series because everything, everyone is going on about what is owed to them, and what, and and whether it be um Roy and Dot or Lorraine's you know business and, and back and forth, and and even the stuff with, of course, with with ooh, And I love that we actually get the correct pronoun. We finally get the pronunciation of like oh. So I've been pronouncing his name incorrectly all season. <laughs> so what was what we we saying?
1: Ole munch? Not munch. Not even close.
0: Munk. <laughs> Ole munch.
1: Yeah, I, I thought the the scene in the prison um the, the, was her um for the first time affecting him emotionally. He, he, he is physically invulnerable, but he's not emotionally invulnerable and she breaks through uh, so much so that, you know, they linger on him after she leaves the cigarette Yeah, and they linger on him. And you see like he is either looking with regret or fear or all of it because he knows whatever power he purports to have, like she's figured out the real power in there is, you know, Money on the books, Vienna sausages, and I like how she says, you know, so they can buy things like Vaseline, uh-huh. Vienna sausages, yeah, like like she's she's so wily in it, um, and you know, and we talked about uh, Holly saying this isn't an overtly political. She talks about being one of the biggest donors to the Federalist Society, yeah, um, you know, <laughs> an, another another veiled. Uh, allusion to the rich people owning the courts and uh but but she sort of lets him know whatever power he thinks he has she's she has pardon the pun trumped it um and and he's he's gonna be in for a long way and she doesn't want him to die she wants him to suffer the way she knows dot did and the way she presumed a man like that treated all the women in his life after seeing dots file the expression on his face
0: um when he tries, he attempts to kind of snarl about how he's not afraid of her. And he's clearly afraid, especially when and in the way she brushes it off, it's like you don't you don't need to be afraid of me. <laughs> you need to be afraid of everything else. It's I I couldn't ask for better. I mean
1: wow it was just mm, chef's kiss. So good. Yeah. And we wanted him to die so bad, but he suffered almost, I mean, he, he got sort of the Vic Mackey fate. Well, you know what? I, I felt we got here.
0: The thing when dot shoots him, we get a certain level of satisfaction from that. Because yeah. she actually shot him. However, that's kind of robbed from us to a certain extent when he murders wit, you know, minutes later, because that's you no, know, and you were talking in an earlier episode, uh, earlier podcast about, oh, we haven't, you know, up until, uh, Danish died, we hadn't killed any actual main character, any of the real characters on the show, which is not Fargo esque, but usually Fargo has a certain body count as we proceed through a season unfortunately we got one we got it in this episode um even if it wasn't the most uh fully sketched out character still a very likable character a very likable a very, and what loved all the scenes the actor had and so on um can i also just say i don't can't remember if i've ever mentioned this in any of the fargo podcasts i must have at one time i must have one of the things doesn't matter what season it is, because I think it's been used in every season. I do love that familiar Fargo percussion when we start to hear that drum beat. It's one of my favorite things. If it wasn't for the fact that it would, pro- <laughs> I'm probably get dinged for some sort of copyright situation. I would be using that as a little musical interstitial for this podcast. But I, when I the
1: moment I hear that, I was like, going, oh yeah, now <laughs> I just got jacked up for that. Oh yeah, it's, it's it's a great it's a great little musical sting.
0: So you have this episode and you had like I said, you had great moments like Dot and Lorraine and then Roy and Lorraine. But I'm gonna say and I I'm I, I, I'm gonna go out on a limb because we have not talked about the episode at all before we started recording. I'm gonna assume that you're we're on the same page on this one. And if we're not, that'd be kind of cool, but I don't think we're going to be. I know you. I know you well enough to know you. Like, it's the entire last scene or sequence of scenes at the home, the um, the lion home. I, it took me a second to remember what the hell their last name was. I will say I knew he was going to be there because he hadn't been in the episode yet. And I saw a picture of him that indicated he was supposed to be in the episodes. They're going, Oh, okay. I wonder what this is going to be about. And that's where we find out the one, well, we've been mispronouncing his name, but there's, it's such a great final several minutes of an episode. I loved his performance and he's been one of the most odd compelling, confusing, confounding, mysterious, and remains so to the extent earlier when we made a reference to True Detective, Night Country, and we were talking about, and I brought up the, uh, uh, following on a point that you had brought up, talking about the supernatural element, and Fargo plays with things like that a little bit, whether it be spaceships or whatnot, and. As we watch all this play out, we've been wondering about this man's actual origins and situations, especially when they gave us that weird 600 years ago flashback. I got to tell you right now.
1: I think that was him. It is him. That is him. He's. <laughs> yeah, he, he talks about being from across the ocean and um, it it's him and his journey coming across the sea on rowboats. Mm-hmm. Like, it's him, and you know we got a couple of answers in this episode. Like, we got the answer that for sure, Dot realizes now everything that happened in Camp Utopia was a dream, and and she acknowledges that she's she's reckoning with it. Right. And we find out Mook really was you know a supernatural force, Right. to the point he even says like I, I, a man can't die, a man, right? Because he does say that.
0: The reason why I, I, I didn't commit totally to saying it was definitive, even though, as you lay it out there, it certainly seems that way, because sometimes we have these characters in, in, in TV shows or movies or books or whatever, where they seem to have experience past lives or the experiences of their ancestors, and but it's not that they themselves experienced it. But the way he tells the story... Uh, later on, um, does seem to seem everything seems to feel like it's him, but everything about the way he plays is first. You you have you have the living room, the kitchen, and the dining room. That's how we that's how we break up this whole sequence. The living room stuff is a is hysterical because of how p- beautifully oblivious Wayne is to. How strange a person this is, and how, and he doesn't sense the menace. We do, because we know who he is. And this was classic Fargo. It was, yeah, it's it just, it's like people who should not be inhabiting a scene together, it seems right. like.
1: When and it gives him an orange pop, the, the and he, orange the way he looked pop, at that orange pop. So good. Like, so it, so it was, it was so, it was, it was the perfect balance of menace and quirk yeah that 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 it 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 was almost it this could have been done where it was completely whimsical and silly but it wasn't like it 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 held together with just the right amounts i mean not to labor the point but you know it was like the perfect you know biscuits it all the different ingredients of this scene were in perfect proportion and really it it was like 20 minutes. I think this scene went on or 15 minutes. It it was like the largest scene in the whole episode. They really took their time with it. And you get menace, you get sadness. Like his story is a tragic story. It weaves into debt. It weaves into how we deal with guilt, with sin. Um, And, and probably the, the most, surprising take on it was, and you pick up on it early on and think it's going that way and it does, but it still is a little bit of a surprise is we see a completely different dot. Huh? Like when you first see her walk in, the only sort of defensive action she does is she puts herself between Scotty and him and she makes sure Scotty is behind her. But She doesn't tell Wayne to leave. She doesn't go for a weapon. Like there's something more grounded and centered about Dot now that you really see her in her element as a mother. This is who she always could have been 100%, but for the fear hanging over her head and probably who she was, uh, you know, except in moments of extreme stress. But we see she's a mother in this scene like she's a wife in this scene Um, yeah i guess yeah i mean when he when she's
0: being held captive initially by roy um when she first is trying to talk roy down that's how she tries to appeal to roy by the fact that she's a mother and that you know her her daughter is wondering gonna prepare her meal whatever it was it was a whole bunch of things to what we talked about in the previous podcast um and i and i remembered that when i was watching the scene because in her mind at least initially she's talking to someone that she knows full well is capable of horrific violence she knows this guy is he already has And she knows that's why he's here. He's not here just to say hi. And she takes, I thought, the way I looked at it is like, she takes a similar approach, but Roy rebuffs it instantly, and then it devolves into violence and, and and, and harsher words and whatever. That's not what's happening here with him. He's resistant. He's not a, it takes a, the acceptance isn't until that bite at the end of the episode, but it's, but she's chipping kind of like Lorraine's wall kind of falling. She's chipping away at his wall.
1: This is, She, she, she is, but it's not a gambit. Like it's who she, she's showing him who she really is.
0: Well, she's also showing him something that he doesn't have any kind of, at least recent, true um, experience of, is a family of of actual affection. He found a a stranger and lived in her house and referred to her as mom, even though she wasn't. And she just sat in the other room drinking beer
1: and tolerated it. He was like a lost boy right he was like a lost boy and she talked to him her her, her communication with him and the way he dribb- dribbled out his story the more she got to know him um right. was was really really interesting so w- when we go through it it's
0: more threatening in the living room that's cuz it's when he lays out the fact he, he goes through the whole Tiger scenario again with her, you know what is he a man frees I, I love how he always refers to himself in like the third person like, yeah, a man free the tiger so the tiger can finish her fight. this does not mean the man is finished with her, you know, and then when he says like we we, we have to fin we, we must finish our engagement <laughs> it's interesting because he's talking and then and then you, you realize because of you know it, it's basically but. I'm losing the ear and Devon said, and they get into again we get into that conversation about debt because he feels that debt has to be paid which is also which was also his issue that he had with roy and gator before with, with with a debt was owed to him i love the way lorraine approaches it because we've been hearing about all these characters we've talked about whatever and then We've certainly heard it out of Lorraine, you know, throughout the whole season, because that's the business they're in. She's the first one who talks about debt the other way you talk, refer to it, as in a debt can also be forgiven. And she's, and she's, trying, she's trying to appeal or find the humanity in someone who, up until this point, has largely been regarded to as, if not a monster, just some sort of creature. And when she says the thing and again, it's the little things by the way, did anyone catch when 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 Wayne goes to put out his hand to, to for a handshake the he actually flinches As an, i was i mean it's just an actor's choice, but part of me was going he could have just not moved at all and just ignored it, but the fact he flinches, I thought was like it shows that he's just not used to friendliness. He's not used to right. people. I, I just and I love that. And when she says either you wash your hands and help or we do this another time because right. you know, they're halfway to supper. And that shot of him washing his
1: hands and I mean look, how dirty they were. I'm thinking about I mean, I mean I'm I'm not sure that he doesn't think that he's not worthy to shake someone's hand, that he's too too dirty. Um be, because we see him wash his hands And, and they're filthy, like they are filthy. And, um, but, but this is where it starts to play with, um, the, the ridiculousness of it and the over the topness of it is comedy, but it's also sort of, sort of sad to see that this guy has no emotional depth but he's starting to feel something and she's starting to get through to him.
0: I think what they do here is I think the living room stuff is initially menace. And then he he doesn't expect the reaction and how she chooses to deal with it. Then we go to the kitchen segment, which is more the, it's it's almost it of of the three sec- sections. If you want to look at it that way, that's that's the one that's maybe played more comedically, because she's actually incorporating him into making the biscuits, right? You know, pouring the milk and everything, whatever, and 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 even when he tr- and he and he still he uh, does a couple times, at least once or twice, he tries to speak the way he, the way he normally does, you know, to try to try to get back on track and why he's here, and it's
1: the way it's kind of dismissed. And it goes back to... <laughs> What's the chaos of a family making dinner and they're just talking and ignoring him? Just, just, just the adorableness
0: of like Scotty talking about, you know, the chimpanzee.
1: <laughs>
0: we're, not, we're not a drive, yeah. which tracks back to her making a joke earlier about wanting to drive, whatever.
1: Yeah, it, 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 it's wonderful. And I even thought there was a beautiful little touch that the secret ingredient the biscuits was a little touch of honey. Right. Yeah. And a little ton, of, little touch of honey makes the medicine go down. Right. 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 Um, and, and sh- that's her secret ingredient is honey. And, and I thought that was a nice touch, but the bemusement he has at looking at this whole scene, like it's, he's not familiar with it that he wasn't, he, he probably never drank an orange pop. And, uh, it, it, it's, it's just great. Well, it's, it leads all, it's, to, it's all alien to him.
0: Yeah. So that's completely. When, so when we get to the dinner table scene, uh segment or scene, whatever. And that's when he, and that's when we get the origin story where he relays all those things. And the people at that table, do they, I mean, it's one of those, is this fellow just telling this, this strange story? Is it, you know, some sort of, you know, just some sort of ritual for him. I don't think they actually know or believe that he's actually truly talking about himself. We think, and we know he is because we got clued in with that 600 years ago thing from way back earlier in the season. The fact that they keep cutting to Scotty's face, watching him. And again, because we're familiar with him. So we know there, we're familiar with the the, the potential, danger here and the amazing thing about with dot is so is she but she still feels like she's in control of the situation because i think she she knows that she's wearing she can she's wearing him down and the fact and so that's why she would be okay with her daughter being right there the fact that they were all holding hands like in like a saying grace beforehand yeah just and how he must have reacted to that,
1: I mean, I think there's a degree to what you're saying, but I think that that this this is where it's most apparent to me that they're really leaning into like she was she's a good person and a mom like if if she wasn't sure she's not gonna let him sit at the table. She's not gonna. She's not gonna close her eyes around the. You know, like to say your prayers and close your eyes. I think that in many ways he is a lost, wayward bo- little boy, and she has picked up on that, and she is she is trying to feed his soul. Now, I agree. She doesn't know that his past is literal. It seems, but but I think the important thing is is they keep showing Scotty. Because Scotty just looks at him like, this is a really interesting story with no judgment. Um, and, you know, and he carries all the weight of having eaten the sin. He's always worried about being judged. And Lord knows Wayne is not judgmental. But Scotty is is just interested in his story. And Dot is is accepting. They're all accepting what he says without judgment.
0: huh. So it does eventually play out to, you know, she basically wants to replace the sin that he's eaten, so to speak, with the biscuit that's made, as she says, with love and joy or whatever. And we do linger on him looking at that biscuit before taking it. And then the final shot literally being him biting into it. And then it's comical and sweet and lovely all at the same time the actual joy that spreads across his face with a smile. And that's the closing shot. Um, so I, th- the way this entire sequence plays out, all three sections, which all add up to the beautiful, you know, very ex- extended long act here. Um, it's a highlight of the season. It's probably the best scene of the season it, it, because it's so unexpected. No, I never, I, I never imagined that's where the show was going to go when we got to the final 15, 20 minutes, and watching these two play off each other, and well, and, and each person in that room is play, is is a is a, totally a different kind of universe, and I love the way they just all interact. It's it's so wonderful. Yeah. It it reminded me of. You know, it's taking the fish out of water to such an extreme. It just reminds me of seeing something where, you know, it's like Jeff Bridges as Starman, you know, encountering things for the first time and how he reacts to things. It's, you know, it's some, it's just someone's, you know, it's stick wrench's heart melting, you know, or growing three sides. It's all happening all at the same time. Now, uh, what was interesting to me, because I kept thinking about, I watched the scene play out. I watched it end. And I was going, wow, that's that's such a great ending. And then I went, wait, is this the best ending of the best final scene of any Fargo season? And I said, wait a minute. There was that scene in season two in the finale. So thank you, Hulu. You, know, you got all my Fargo there. So I go to put on I actually went back and put on season two, the final episode. And I, my my plan was to fast forward to the end. I wasn't gonna watch the whole goddamn episode. That's that's crazy talk. But as I was fast forwarding, I could you know, you could see the little little small little screen above the, the little timeline of it. and I said, whoa whoa, 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 wait a minute. The scene I thought that was at the end <laughs> of the season two finale where the Christina Malati character, who is Salverson's wife, um, has this whole, envisions the future. And we, we, we move forward through time. And then we see the characters who are actually from season one and, and getting older and, and so on and so on. I thought that was at the end of the episode. It's not. It's at the beginning of the episode. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. So how does this... So I fast forwarded to the end and I watched the final you know, several minutes. And I watched how it played. I went, huh, that's interesting. And it made me curious. So then I went back to season one and went to the final episode. And I fast forwarded to the last few minutes of that after um, uh, Martin Freeman's character has has, has fallen through the ice and such. After that, final scene, whatever. I was like, huh, look at that. That's interesting, that's something in common. Season three doesn't do it. Season three ends in a very different way um on a question actually, which these seasons usually don't end on we We actually don't know what happens at the end of season three they leave They leave that open, but we we've talked about this season feeling like a return to, to the way the way the show went to seasons one and two. Both seasons one and two end with the core family of the show together, and a meal is taken, has taken, or is taking place. Either they've just finished eating, or they're about to eat, or whatever. In season two, it's you know it's Patrick Wilson, Kristen Malati, and and dad-in-law Ted dancing, and they're having it, and and one character is, is is holding court, telling a story. I should also as he does there and it's but it's very moving and it and it's kind of a sweet ending season one guess what it's her it's 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 um i forgot her i I forgot her name already but it's you know what's those two the the couple that that are now married and she's pregnant and their kid is there and they're all together and they're hanging out and (laughs) talking i'm like oh all these three have in common is at the end with the core family of the show together at the end. It's just an interesting kind of thing they have mm-hmm. in common. And it, and it, and it's funny that I went back to check and I didn't have that in mind. I thought it had a totally different ending. and I mean, I also went and checked out the endings for season three and season four. And season four, there's a little bit of that in season four, but, they, but we're seeing too many scenes of other things happening at the same time, so it doesn't quite work. But then again, season four... Season four doesn't feel very fargo away. At, at the end of the day, I mean, it's not, it's not quite Halloween three season of which doesn't fit with the Halloweens, but kind of, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But I I thought that was just a, a clearly a very deliberate choice on Noah Hawley's part, and it made me it reminded me of like, oh, you know what? I think the structure of the episodes is fairly similar in that sense. Like we said, top loaded, big thing happens. Oh wait, they've done that already. That's we're only halfway through the episode but there's more.
1: So I, I yeah. really,
0: I really kind of got a kick
1: out of that. I I suspected, uh, I suspected that that would be the case. I didn't go back and forensically investigate as you did. Kudos to you, Scott, but, um, but this has been a season chock full of, of references and homages to both the movie and the show. Um, so that's, that's not a big surprise, but, um, I mean, right now, if you ask me to, to compile, you know, my 10 favorite scenes from Fargo, the series, if I just start watching it tomorrow, I'm sure this one would be high on the list. Like, like this ending scene. Um, there weren't a lot of, there weren't a lot of surprises per se. Um, maybe we would have thought more people died, but to end this show with, a 20 minute talk about debt and food and family and forgiveness. Um, and it'd be really touching and, uh, center on a character that's sort of mysteriously weaved in and out of this season. Uh, it was unexpected and incredible and I absolutely loved it. And, you know, Holly wrote it. So, uh, I noticed he was the only writer credited on this episode. So it has, it gives me great hopes for a season six, uh, because I, I, now that I've watched the journey of this season, uh, I I've loved it. And I thought the ending, the ending left me thinking, but, but I was happy. And I don't know that we've had a protagonist that, that took the journey dot did that, that, really, we were rooting for her. I don't know that we had a 15 year old girl married to a creep who was beaten by her and ran away and had to survive, you know, being kidnapped and uh, all that by, by somebody. Um, and so her journey and seeing it in here with, you know, around a family table, eating a dinner was really, really rewarding. Um, and, and, Thinking this family is going to be okay. The question is, at the end of dinner, does Mook say, "I live here now," or do they do they have to evict him, or or is or does he does he wander off and disappear? I mean, you know, he's almost like a golem uh, in in a weird way, and uh, but but this, but ending seeing him smile in the most creepy, funny, weird way. Uh, was was really, really something. And and uh, that last that last scene is definitely going in the Fargo Hall of Fame for me. Right. Absolutely. Uh, um, I would say
0: he leaves, um, although I do love the idea of him making it his home Um, have their own personal larch but i think he i I feel he um much like i feel another fog would roll up and he would just disappear into it um and then appear again probably in 2049 or something or and that'll be the next season of fargo with flying cars and such Um, um i would say as far as quieter scenes it's easily one of my my could be my favorite scene as far as that kind of scene i can think of other scenes that i have that have stayed with me that are locked in my brain as far as the using your phrase fargo hall of fame um there's a few definitely a few in season one the entire story of of um billy bob thornton being a dentist is outstanding all the way up to killing everybody in the elevator <laughs> whatever yeah or even little moments of, of again it's his character um going to take care of business in that what that in the building when he <laughs> oh yeah shot
1: from across the street yeah and just <laughs> we know he's he's just killed everybody he's like he's like hey john wick I, look i'm years before you or the scene in the in
0: the snowstorm when he's fighting fighting those two, and you know we we have one of those characters come back in season three, but that's a brilliant scene. I mean, just there are set pieces and action pieces or or humor pieces that are really well done. And I'm not even gonna touch season two. I mean, look, you know, spaceship—that's um, <laughs> all you need. Or the or everything that takes place in that house with um. Oh, what's his name from burn notice? Um, my mate's drawing a blank on his name and I know his name.
1: Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I know who you're talking about.
0: I, yeah, but I should know. I should know the actor's name. That's embarrassing. Anyway, when he's ta- when he's taken captive by Carson Dunson, and, um, and Jesse Plemons there, oh, my mate drawing a blank on his name. It's so I'm so embarrassed. Um, he's even in a Clint, he's even in a, in a not so great Clint Eastwood movie. Anyway, that whole scene is fucking great. Um, but as far again, as far as quieter scenes, it's I, I thought it was a marvel. Uh, I, I thought it, it you, I thought a season that was so predicated on different types of horror motifs and escalating tension. And when the subject matter, I mean, yes, you have the theme of debt that plays a part throughout the entire series and every kind of storyline, but thematically, we're talking about, you know, you know, the empowerment or lack thereof with women and the violence against them and what what they've had to struggle with and and, and what this character specifically does, and for a season that's been kept one either on edge, or Moments where we're we're horrified by things either that happened in the past or that are happening right in front of us or happening via puppet show. To end this way was just as t- I'm going to say something that sounds like you would say. It felt like that was the honey in our biscuit, and that's it was like right there, and I was like, okay, beautifully done. As far as compared to the previous four seasons, I'm, we've got, I I hate, I hate worrying about recency bias, but that is a thing. It's always going to be a thing. The good thing for me is by doing my little forensic work, as you said, it brought those previous seasons really into sharp focus because I actually watched like the last six or seven minutes of each one. For example, I decided I didn't hate Martin Freeman throwing through the ice, which I, th- I thought was the thing I always critiqued back in the day. And I watched the whole scene play out and remember, it's like, oh, you know what, I kind of, now that I'm remembering, I kind of like that. Um, so I, I will put this far ahead of seasons three and four. Three. I cannot put it ahead of seasons one and two. I can say there, I think there are things in each season that maybe this is better than this, this is better than whatever, but overall, I'm not prepared to do that, but being, coming behind those two, to me, it's not, it's not negative. It's like when we would, you know what, it's like when we would talk about like Breaking Bad and we were ranking the seasons. And for putting like four ahead of five or three ahead of four whatever you know one of three four or five one of those has to be number three doesn't mean it's bad me- means it's it's fucking fantastic. We just like the other two better. That's the way I look at it with this that's the way I'm... i
1: i i think if if I was to play off what you said, um for me, two and five are really, really close. I think one's the definite winner of the five seasons. Um, And that's probably a lot due in part because there were so many facets to Billy Bob Thornton's character uh, in that season. And um, but like this season, I mean, you know, if if Fargo is a band, you know, when you went on Apple Music and it said essential albums like, you know, season five would be, you know. One of the three essential albums of the band. It'd yeah. be season one, two, and five. Oh yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. I I I I go along with that. No, great season, great finale. Um, when we did the four hundredth podcast and we did our top twenty shows, and I personally had Fargo as number six on my list, and I had said at that time, you know. I'm curious how, just how good the final two episodes will be. And if they're as good as it's, as it's been, if I could go back, would I push Fargo into my top five? Would I switch it out with something? I'm going to say yes. I would have done that. Uh, what was Pingo? I had succession the Bear. What the hell is my number three show? I have no remember. That's really weird. Well, I definitely wouldn't I think I had beef at five, so I definitely would. At the very least, I'd switch Fargo out with beef to be number five. I don't know why I'm drawing a blank on what my number four show was. That's kind of weird. Huh. Oh well, uh, Get Poker Face at four? Oh, that's it. Ooh, yeah. You know what? I, pu- I put. I put. I pop it ahead of p- Poker Face. Now I'd make it three. I I would make it three. If I, if I can go back and re-record that, I, I, Fargo would be number three for me. I still would put Bear in succession ahead of it, but I think, uh, and I really, I mean, obviously I love those two shows I just mentioned, but they stuck the landing so nice. You know, I kind of thought they would. Holly doesn't generally let us down when, when once you've got that, the season going for, for this, for, for this many episodes, but, um, I'm, I don't know how it's going to sound weird. I think the finale was better than I expected it to be. I think I was so, and we keep coming back. And I know, I, I know there's a, I know there's a little bit of mocking in there because of what I said during the 400th podcast for the word satisfying, I don't fucking care. <laughs> it, the resolution of the, of, of the Roy Tillman character, immensely satisfying. The, the slight, but not quite redemption or at least, of greater appreciation of the Lorraine character, immensely satisfying, how they and how they tie up all this bizarreness with Ula Munk, incredibly satisfying, and Dot's progression through the entire season, culminating in what you what you said yourself here, and 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 who she truly is. Again, I'll say it one last time: immensely satisfying. Um,
1: yeah. What yeah, I, I think that, that you, you touched on the the only um the the only disappointment for me, and this is the only disappointment based on my previous expectations, mm-hmm. not disappointment uh, abstract. Um, is I think I expected to know and see more of Indira and Wit. yes, and we didn't, but that's okay because now we know where the story was going and where it was focused and who it was focused on. Right. Uh, But, you know, I I think uh, handicapping the show early on where we thought it would go. um, We had expectations for those characters that weren't filled out, but they were filled out by other wonderful things. So um, I, I think you hit it on the head
0: earlier in the podcast uh, with the observation that this was the season where, the, the the figure of authority the 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 person of law what was the antagonist not the protagonist we throw out season four because yes we had Timothy Olfen who's there and then they kill him don't they kill him at some point so he and he doesn't he he never feels like he plays a significant role in that season and then you have the corrupt cops still also not because it's more about because it's it's just the the rival gangs and all that. It it's it's a it doesn't feel like a season again. I I every critic has said this at some point. I think to a certain degree, it doesn't feel like a season of Fargo. It feels like it's a nod to other Cohen brother things, but not Fargo. Right. It takes place in Kansas, for God's sake.
1: Anyway. <laughs> right. But I, I mean, I I think to to put a final bow on it, um, we were excited to podcast about it. We had hopes for it and quite frankly, hopes it would be better than last season. And I think whatever baseline hopes we started with, um, and we were pretty excited because John Hamm was involved, um, and interested, you know, not, not a slag on Juno temple, but interested to see what she would do. Um, but seeing John Hamm involved, uh, and the rest of the cast, it, probably exceeded our expectations by the end of the day
0: absolutely um the person i was most impressed by was was a person i had the lowest expectations for which was juno temple i knew her from ted lasso i think she's fine on it although i think the character has become a became a waste of time in the final season of ted lasso that's why no sane person would put put it on their top 20 honorable mentions or otherwise list that's right i just took a shot at our missing (laughs) co-host Couldn't resist. But come on. Um glad that didn't win any fucking Emmys. But she impressed me. She impressed me as much as the the episodes got better from episode to episode. I thought I think the season got exponentially better as we've progressed further. And her performance and the range and what she was capable of doing did the same thing. So I went in expecting John Hamm to be great, didn't know he was going to be a villain, because I never knew, like, oh, okay. And he was even better than that. But Juno Temple had to do a lot of heavy lifting, except for that one episode that she has appear in. <laughs> but, but otherwise, she's pretty much holding the weight of the whole show and does a
1: damn good job of it. Really great. And, and, and I think just I should mention, um, Joe Keery, good job. Yes, it, you're right. As, yeah, was like, Gator. You're
0: right. Absolutely. Like, I, I Absolutely. mean, he
1: really found a emotional vulnerability in that character that, that by the end of the season was compelling enough to, to make you emotionally feel sorry for him and have empathy for him because of the monster his father was and what happened to him because of it.
0: Right, 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 right.
1: All righty, then.
0: I think it's that time. The time where I say. If you enjoy this podcast, you will also enjoy hanging out on our Facebook page. If you're still on Facebook, that is look us up. It's a serious TV drama podcast page. Join the page, like the page, join the conversation about shows like Fargo, but anything you want to talk about there, eh, we're easy. We are available on most podcast platforms. Of course, you can simply look us up on podbean.com where you can access all 402, 402 of our episodes. If you happen to use Apple Podcasts, feel free to rate and review us there. In all these spots, you can also find my other little podcast venture, Scott Forgot the 80s. Just remember my name, God damn it's spelled with one T, and there's no apostrophe in 80s. Everyone thinks there's an apostrophe in 80s. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. And ain't the Oxford comma. You're wrong. Anyway. Um, you can also find, back to this podcast, you can also find us on Instagram, as serious TV drama is one word, and on what I call X Twitter, at STVD podcast, That's STVD as in serious TV drama. This would normally be the spot where I would say what the next podcast is going to be. I don't know what the next podcast is going to be. I haven't really made plans to specifically cover anything. It's conceivable maybe we might we could come back and do something towards the end or at the end of the seasons of a uh, true detective and monsieur Spade, perhaps. There are other things that are coming to T V that might interest us, but I can't really specifically say we're gonna do this, this or this for sure. There are a lot of interesting projects that are coming down the pike many of which we mentioned on the 400th podcast and for whatever we mentioned i bet there's probably several others that we didn't um i don't think we're going to tip cover masters of the year i think that'd be a bit much but, <laughs> but um i would say what what is today, today is what the 17th 18th mm-hmm. okay I would be surprised if we if we don't have another podcast out within the next co- next few weeks. We'll see, um, which means it'll be a lovely surprise. Maybe Jamie'll show up. Who knows?
1: Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are things that we are talking about off mic that, that are interesting, and we're going to check them out. Um, the The one thing that I know Scott learned in the past, and we've talked about, is is Sometimes you want to make sure a show is good enough to podcast about. Um, and so, you know, uh, not country may be really good. I mean, we might want to talk about it in a couple of weeks yeah. um, or we might decide maybe we do a wrap up at the end of the season and talk about it like that. So, you know, we're kicking around ideas, but if you have thoughts or ideas that you'd like to share with us, feel free to share those on any of the social media sites. But, uh, but we really enjoyed this, and we'll definitely see you again. And if uh, you have opinions about Fargo that you'd like to share, thoughts, ideas, you know, Scott talked to uh, you all about Jason. Jason uh, had put up uh, some really interesting thoughts and we shared those with you about the windmill. Shout out again, Jason, uh, fellow Kentucky boy, (laughs) Um, you know, a a really, really good, really good call. Um, Do that. And uh, before we sign off, I think that uh, Scott and I would like to, without divulging personal details, I know there's a friend and a listener who recently is going through something very, very difficult in his life. Um, and we'd just like to say how incredibly um, sorry we are for what you're going through. And, uh, you know, if you find joy in any form of entertainment and listening to us for one second, we hope you do know that we're supporting you we're with you and we just hug you up in our arms and send you all the love Dennis. Uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, so, and I'll let Scott have the final word.
0: Well, I couldn't have been much more eloquent about it myself. So I'm glad I, I let you take the lead because, you know, coming with the, with, with, the, with the Southern drill makes it sound even that much more um, comforting. Um, but I, I, also want to share my sentiments there um awful news but and we're there for you whatever you need even if it's just and if it's something as simple as just making sure we get this podcast out in time so at least you're distracted for well it's one of our podcasts we'll so probably be i haven't looked. an hour and a half 18 hours and a half i don't know but whatever we can do in any way, shape, or form, we are there for you. With that said, um, Brian, um, as always, uh, I adore spending my podcast time and just time to actually chat with you and see you, see you in the Skypey flush over there. Um, I'm glad we, uh, were able to get this Fargo season done. I'm glad it turned out to be a really good season. It didn't, cause let's face it. The last couple at times felt like a chore. This never felt like a chore. Nope, that was, never. Real, that was, and it's nice when we can cover something and you have that feeling. You know, I, I'm like Barry. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I like Barry. I don't, I'm sounding way more negative about Barry than I meant to, but now I'm just making a joke of it. I'm more interested. Wait, he's with Ali Wong now? Really? Interesting. Interest. How long has that been going on for?
1: Um, yeah. Well, well done, both of you guys. They're so funny. Anyway, Brian <laughs> I'm allowed to say this if you know anything about Bill Hader. A lot of beef and Ali Wongs uh past year. <laughs> oh my god.
0: <laughs> he's got a ha- he's got his own hamaconda, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think I've heard of that. Yep. All right, so we we gotta go because uh, we gotta toss around possible cat names. So <laughs> <laughs> there there may, there may be some podcasts in our future it's it's looking weirdly good i i i didn't know this was going to happen but i i might have broken down we shall see once again brian thanks for being here good night thank you guys for listening and good night mm-hmm.